0: Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you here. Thank you very much for, for coming over. It's my first time in this room, only probably second time in, in this particular building, but uh, what a treat we've had, haven't we, to to be able to hear from the speakers this morning and be able to pray and sing and praise God in that magnificent environment. Um, and, yeah, I, I hope that what I have to say this morning will be of some benefit and continue that theme we heard of finding the common good, though in this case it's about finding the common ground, uh, is what I've been asked to speak on this morning. Um, Just a a brief introduction to myself, I'm I'm Justin. I host uh, a fairly well-known in its niche uh, apologetics and theology discussion show called Unbelievable. It's been broadcasting on Premier Christian Radio for, um, well, gosh, getting on for 16 years or so. Um, this is in the studio setting, though we're just in a period of transition actually at Premier Christian Radio, we're, we've just moved out of our offices in Chapter Street where our studios have been based for, well, pretty much all of my career at Premier um, into temporary accommodation in Dowgate Hill in the city uh, as we uh, look to move to a new home in a couple of years' time, a, a newly redeveloped uh, building in the in the city, um, but uh, perhaps you'll hear about that in due course. But Certainly, the unbelievable radio show started, as I say, about 15 or 16 years ago, and it was really about bringing different perspectives together. I had started at the radio station, which exists primarily for Christians. It's um, run by Christians. It's to resource and train and help and encourage the church, but I wanted to create at least one space in the week when we would actually engage directly with non-Christians. That after all, those are the people that most of our listeners were around in their daily lives, their family, their friends, their colleagues and so on. Um, it's not quite as possible in the UK to live in a Christian bubble as it is if you're maybe somewhere in the the, the, the the States, in the South or wherever. And And I wanted an opportunity once a week where we would actually directly engage with the questions, concerns, objections of non-Christians. So that was really how Unbelievable, with a question mark, was born. Uh, and each week I would bring in two different perspectives. Um, again, this is going back several years now, but uh, the gentleman closest to me here um, is Andrew Copson, who heads up the British Humanists, um, Humanists UK, I think it's called now. Uh, and, um, and opposite him, uh, Theo Hobson at the time, is a, a theologian and thinker who had a book out on Humanism and whether God created humanism was his conjecture. So they were in to discuss and debate that for this particular show where this photograph was taken. Um, And over the years, uh, as it developed, the the show brought together lots of different perspectives, um, often Christians and atheists, sometimes people of other faiths with Christians, often Christians from different perspectives coming together to dialogue and debate and, yeah, just really to, to, to air their differences. But hopefully in a respectful way. Uh, over the years, the show's evolved in, in various ways. Uh, we, became, uh, we started podcasting quite early on, actually, in the life of the show. This would have been 2007. And, and the interesting thing at the point where we started podcasting the show was that we were suddenly reaching an audience well beyond just the confines of the primarily Christian audience for Premier Christian Radio. In fact, people all over the world started listening, especially when I brought non-Christians on, perhaps who had a following on blog or wherever, they would then put the podcast out to their audience and suddenly I'd have a wave of new listeners starting to follow the show who were not necessarily Christians, atheists, agnostics, people of other faiths. And that suddenly changed the dynamic for me because I suddenly felt the the challenge and the responsibility to represent both sides as fairly as I could, to really be the moderator, hopefully as neutrally as possible. And and one of the the greatest compliments I, I ever have when running the show is people who say, well, I listened for a few weeks and I actually couldn't tell exactly whether f- I d- didn't even know you were Christian for a while. Um, now I think that's not meant in a derogatory way, but it's it's meant just to mean um, you chaired things in a way that hope was hopefully even-handed between both sides. Of course, I am a <coughs> Christian, and my Christian faith does come through in various ways once people listen for long enough. But um, but that was great to be able to. Uh, find and, and start communicating with this wider audience uh and of course we moved into video as well in more recent years uh, we have now a, a youtube channel and again that's wonderful to reach a, a whole new audience on on youtube and elsewhere um this was one of the early shows we recorded in our video studio at the time you may recognize uh, jordan peterson who's a well-known sometimes controversial uh psych psychologist uh from canada opposite susan blackmore this was and um yeah, we, we've had some wonderful opportunities to bring
1: big things together
0: for these kinds of dialogues and debates over the years. This actually remains our most popular ever video on YouTube, mainly because of <laughs> the cult status that Jordan Peterson occupies. But, um, yeah, it's, it's been a wonderful opportunity for me to be able to, to, to do this, uh, to have the, you know, the ability, really, um, and the openness uh, of the organisation to bring people together from different perspectives. In the early days, you know, there were some challenges to this because, as you can imagine, as a Christian radio station, not everyone was happy in terms of the listenership of us bringing quite compelling atheist arguments on air and having them challenge those who were listening. Obviously, I always sought to bring a good Christian respondent on the other side, but, uh, you know, there were plenty of people who said, we've got enough atheists on the BBC, do we need them (laughs) on our Christian radio station as well? But actually, the people who enjoyed listening really stuck with it they saw the value of it they saw that actually it was important to get out of the bubble and start engaging with people and so um and so part of the reason I think why the show has actually become popular with both Christians and non-Christians who listen and watch is that it does hopefully break through some of the polarization that has really crept in increasingly in the years that I've been doing the show um when we started you know, social media was in its infancy. But nowadays, we've seen the way that social media has tended to exacerbate the divisions that exist in culture, in terms of politics, ideology, the religion, debate, and so on. And, and so the, a great advantage, I think, of, of doing the unbelievable show has been actually that we've got people face-to-face. We've sat down for long-form content. We've brought two different sides together and it's actually much harder, I think, to be rude to someone when you're sitting opposite them. It's much easier to do that on Twitter, on Facebook, where you've got the anonymity that that affords. Uh, but actually, when you bring people together, it's surprising. Even, you know, apparently mortal enemies can, in, can actually sit down and have a conversation. So um, uh, so the, sh- the show doesn't just deal purely with sort of questions of is Christianity true and did the resurrection really happen and that kind of thing with all kinds of ethical issues get debated. Um, Dr. Mark Pickering of um, Christian Medical Fellowship there opposite. Um, uh, Rabbi Jonathan Romain debating assisted suicide last year. Uh, You can see that this environment is slightly different. We uh, we've done a lot since since the pandemic of doing remote broadcasting and and recording. Uh, So I have my sort of home studio now as well available to be able to record shows and put them out on video and audio. But these are the kinds of ethical debates that we might do sometimes slightly more esoteric ones psychedelic drugs for and against (laughs) this one was called uh, Ashley Landay was uh, an interesting guest who had her own story of having been very deeply into using um, you know psychedelic drugs uh, before she became a Christian Uh, she was opposite Uh, a philosopher called Peter Schursted-Hughes from Exeter who believes in the power of you know mind-altering substances to Bring you higher planes of consciousness. My video editor very cheekily put me in a slightly uh, <laughs> state of, you know, trance or whatever uh, in the video that he captured. Anyway, um, these are just, you know, some of the, this gives you a sense of the breadth of the kind of topics we do actually address. Though at the core of it is the question: Does Christianity make sense? Can it stand up on its own two feet intellectually in the marketplace of ideas in the public square? And that's very much what the show has existed for to try and say, actually, Christians aren't afraid of being challenged, of putting their views forward, and that we're willing to do it toe-to-toe with people, if they're willing, to come and have a conversation with us. Uh, And uh, a few years ago, I published a book which just really (coughs) made the case for Christianity uh, on the basis of many of the shows and discussions that I've had over the years. It's called Unbelievable, Why After Ten Years of Talking with Atheists, I'm Still a Christian was published at around the 10-year mark of the show. We're a little bit older than that now. But um, it was really about helping, I suppose, to to encourage others to go and have those kinds of conversations, to not be afraid. Um, Yes, they're often challenging, and it takes work, and it takes certainly perseverance and patience uh, to actually engage with the arguments, to get to know people. But it's worth the effort, I found. It really is worth the effort. One of the most recent things we've been engaged in is... Uh, the Big Conversation. Um, this was one of our recent episodes. This is a partnership we run with John Templeton Foundation um, from the US and that allows us to bring some really interesting big thinkers together for dialogue and debate. Um, this was, uh, sorry my screen keeps flicking on and off, but this, um, this was Ian McGilchrist and Sharon Dirichs, um recently brought them together at the British Library in London in May. Um, For those who who may not be aware, Ian McGilchrist is a fascinating psychiatrist, a bit of an expert on brain science. He's published a very influential book called The Master and His Emissary, about the way that the left and right hemispheres of the brain work, and the way that that has actually influenced culture. Uh, And he's one of those interesting characters, a bit of a polymath, uh, because his background is in literature and classics, but he went into... Uh, medicine, and, and eventually ended up you know, writing these extraordinary books on the way that the left-right brain has sort of divided our culture, essentially. Um, so we had a, a fascinating conversation. Oh, dear. We've gone into spinny mode. Hopefully this, this doesn't mean things have uh, have crashed already. There we go. We're back. Um, Sharon Dirichs, um, uh is part of the Oxford Centre for Christian Apologetics and herself has a background in neuroscience. So they had a fascinating discussion on whether there's a master behind our mind, uh, you can go and watch that as a, as a recent edition of this Big Conversation series. Um, in fact, I'll give you a little taster of what the current. Sorry to be a salesman for, 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 the, for, for the show, but we've been working hard on this latest season of special shows from the Big Conversation from, from Unbelievable. Uh, and this will just give you a taster of some of the guests we've got in our current lineup. Here we go. <laughs>
1: if somebody was going to convince me of the need for a a god it would be there if you're going to set natural laws in place including evolution to ultimately result in something amazing and beautiful creation it's going to also do other things along the way and god can't step in every whip stitch and avoid parasites
2: but then francis you can't have it both ways you cannot have a god who does miracles on the one hand and lets the laws of physics play themselves out without interference on the other
3: you believe in no. I
1: think I can have it both ways.
3: I've sometimes I said when I'm preaching, God is like water. And Water finds a way in, even if there's the slightest little gap. She said, "You're going to become a Christian." And we were we weren't even talking about religion. I said, "What are you talking about?" And she said, "I don't know. I just knew that. I just knew that, so I had to say." It. Wait. Fantasy is one thing, but
2: imagination is the only chance we have to reach reality.
3: Clearly, mind and brain are connected, but the science doesn't say anything about the nature of that connection. I think that some elements in my story speak of providential design in ways that are a little bit more expected if Christianity is true than they are if atheism is true.
4: From a naturalist point of view, that's kind of going to
5: look like special pleading.
2: Had some rough experiences over the summer, and about a month ago, and I think I can say this, I would say I found God. It's
1: kind of like the Israelites during the exodus. Experiences with God were so strong that they were led out of Egypt, but they weren't enough to keep the Israelites satisfied in the long run. You might convince somebody
0: like me to be a... Then you suddenly say, okay, well, because of... Ah,
2: (laughs)
4: Right
0: <laughs> well, apologies that the, uh, the video is being slightly interrupted, but uh, that, that end clip um, involves um, Richard Dawkins and Francis Collins, uh, and, in which um, Richard Dawkins says, well, you might convince me to be a deist, at which point... Francis Collins says, aha, you see, he's converted. <laughs> um, so it was, a, it was just a fun moment in, in the discussion. But uh, yes, uh, I mean, I'm sure many of you are familiar with, with both of these gentlemen. Richard Dawkins, well-known uh, biologist and atheist, uh, Francis Collins, uh, a, a very well-known geneticist and Christian from the US who uh, was headed up the Human Genome Project that decoded the human genome and indeed um, has more recently been involved in leading the the COVID response in the U.S. as director of the National Institutes of Health, though he's recently retired from that role and was then asked to become science advisor to uh, President Biden. Uh, I managed to catch him just in between those roles. So it was providence, really, that, that he was able to say yes to this invitation to, to have a dialogue with Richard Dawkins. Um, but um, those are the kinds of conversations I love being able to host and, and to bring together. Um, and what I've discovered in the process of doing that is that, actually, um, even people you wouldn't necessarily expect to necessarily sit down and have a conversation, it sometimes happens. You'd be surprised, actually. And for me, that's, that's an important aspect of this finding the common ground idea. It's about actually simply being open to inviting people together to come and talk about their differences. Um, I mean, there is conflict. Of course there is. There was plenty of disagreement between Francis Collins and Richard Dawkins uh, in this particular episode. But it was interesting because it was, and I'll I'll explain more about this later, it was seasoned with actually a lot of respect for each other as well. Uh, And I think there's been a bit of a change in the temperature of the whole Christian atheist debate in recent years on on that front. Um, Of course, we can't pretend that we agree on things. and, And I think one of the most difficult things when it comes to conflict, especially, is when people are so entrenched in their particular perspective that they they fail to see any other way of looking at the question. Uh, I think this is true of people on whichever side of the aisle they stand, on politics, religion, uh, various issues around ideology. Um, we're, we can all be guilty of it at some level. Um, in fact, uh, there, was, there was one interview which really stood out in my mind, and I apologise if, again, the, 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 the video comes and goes a little bit with this next one, but uh, it's an interview that, that I uh, hosted, uh, a, a show I hosted between... Uh, A well-known Christian cosmologist, Hugh Ross, from the USA, he runs a uh, a ministry called Reasons to Believe there. Opposite um, the Oxford chemist, Peter Atkins, who's a well-known atheist of the sort of new atheist variety. And um, Peter Atkins has, you know, it would be fair to say, quite a dismissive, even arrogant attitude in the way he brings himself across. But there was a really interesting moment when they were sitting down together with me to discuss the whole question of whether it's even in principle possible for there to be evidence for God from science, from nature, and so on. And uh, and this was the response that uh, that Peter Atkins had. And again, apologies if there's any interruptions as this plays, but we'll, we'll see what we get. Here we go. Some people might accuse you of being so committed to atheism that you'd never be willing to countenance any evidence that might lend support to a creator behind the universe. So, I'm just interested, what sort of evidence could science or the physical universe present to you that would make you think, actually, that that is evidence that there's a a mind behind this? I've, a very difficult question. Um, uh,
4: If I were looking in the Bible for evidence, heaven forbid, um, I, I um, would expect to see maybe increase in entropy is equal to Q temperature, and that is if, if, if
0: there was literally an equation
4: in rather than all this wishy washy, okay. um, elastic writing
0: that it pervades. Right, so, so if, if there was something discovered yeah, in the Bible, Then I think that, it was be, probably that, a forgery. Well, exactly. The, the pro- he says it would probably be a fortune <laughs> I mean. Is, Any kind of evidence in the universe that could make... I mean, if
1: the stars lined up to spell Peter,
4: please believe in me, it's about time. I put it it down to madness.
0: You put it down (laughs) to madness.
2: (laughs) It sounds like, Peter, that there's no evidence that would persuade you away from it. Well, to be honest, I think that's... that sense... Uh Do you even have an evidence-based view
0: if you're actually committed to atheism a priori?
4: Well, predicting... That there will be no such evidence. That's not quite the same thing as being committed to it a priori. Um, I, I I can't. But you exist. said there's no
2: evidence that would persuade uh, you otherwise. I,
4: I think it's much more likely that I would have gone mad. <laughs> mm-hmm. Which evidence would have been provided.
0: Right. So so in principle, it's impossible. But exists.
4: I, I don't quite say that, mm-hmm. but. Um, well, what would persuade you? I, I can't conceive of, even if I died and was confronted with, you know, St. Peter saying, welcome to yeah. heaven. Um, I'd probably think I was dreaming. Um, would you I, I'm, I'm, I'm well, a, that leads me on to my next question. If, <laughs> if
0: I would. It's I mean, do, do you want God to exist in any sense, shape or form? Would you be pleasantly surprised if you woke up on the other side of death? And found
4: a life of eternal bliss. That right? yeah,
0: right. Right. Okay, looks like, looks go like go the video is hell just about giving it. up. But you get the idea. Um, there, it was a fascinating conversation because... Um, Atkins really, you know, admitted in that moment that that there was, in principle, really nothing that could actually convince him. He was so, so wedded to his naturalistic perspective, to his atheism, that he would interpret every everything that came to him through that perspective. Jesus appeared to me in front of me, you know, in this room. I'd assume I was having a sort of, you know, brain hemorrhage or something. And and so 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 there's a sort of an interesting um, point at which you have to say. There are, you know, there are some circumstances under which people are, 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 in principle, not willing to have a conversation in which they're open to having their mind changed. And that can be true of us as well, just as much as it can of, of an atheist guest like Peter Atkins, who may come on and so on. We've, and, and part of the challenge, I think, of finding common ground is actually being willing to listen and to potentially change your mind, actually. I think we always have to have the possibility that we could be wrong, the possibility that there might be evidence out there that you know, goes against you know, our particular perspective. And for me, that's part of the challenge of running something like Unbelievable. You're inviting every time someone to come in and have that kind of a dialogue, have that kind of a, a challenging of their perspective. And the only kind of real conversations you can have are ones where there is that genuine listening and dialogue and conversation. Um, as I said, one of the reasons I think that the show has uh, sort of gained the notoriety it has is because it does give an opportunity in, in a very polarised age for people to have these genuine kinds of interactions where we're not simply talking past each other or lobbing verbal hand grenades at each other. So I just thought, as we, as we get into this seminar, I wondered whether we could maybe just have a little time, perhaps in twos or threes, just to quickly talk through these three questions that i put on the screen. Um, what are the issues that you 're finding are the most polarizing? Um, where are you encountering those conversations, and thirdly, how are you navigating them so i don 't know for me obviously this is a very specific environment the, the sort of the studio environment where we do these discussions between christians and non Christians but I wonder um, where you 're seeing not necessarily just those kinds of conversations but conversations on all kinds of other issues. Um, where are you encountering them what what are the issues you're finding why are they so polarizing and how are you navigating them so i'm going to give you just a 2 or 3 minutes if you could find someone to talk to and then i'll come round with a roving mic and we'll we'll get a few bits of feedback so go for it <laughs>
5: I think in the context of young people as well. I think the most uh, uh, the, 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 uh, uh, oh, the church suffering suppose pain the main mm-hmm. yeah. things that will come up the difficulty to the spiritual the spiritual squares for the polarities how you are looking the of the issues so the, um, like, the of the so think to the vaccination has yeah, be yeah. uh, yes. yes. been an issue within um, yeah. like yes. the person the is the 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 uh, uh, has a relationship for getting a mission and gospel message clear.
4: I find that, that I'm not wanting to engage in those conversations because I want
2: to go into
4: a thing like bunny trap for the main thing, keeping the main thing and the main thing for them of, of, of building something to do gospel. But of course you can't avoid
5: them indefinitely because they, they end up compromising or so, gospel. No, they end up uh, compromising the gospel. No, you know, what I would believe and just to be a single I go like so, i mean, the way I'm handling them you I'm avoiding them in, in, in terms of professional one I can't, I can't remember I mean, I'm so tempted to, to uh, respond on a facebook well, one Friends I work with locally, full of vitriol against Brexit. And, and I was, you know, and I'm not sure. as I,
3: said, I would lose, I would lose oh all really so the other relationship with this guy. And I issues
5: as well.
0: Another 30 seconds and then I'll come round.
2: The violent aspect family. It's My to
0: Okay. Apologies for the for the brevity, but we'll see what you've been saying. Anyone willing to volunteer uh, any any issues or thoughts that came out of their little discussion huddle? Do do send me a hand up if uh, if you've got if you'd like to volunteer.
4: No one likes to be the first, I know.
0: Anybody who uh, ha- wants to share any thoughts from their from their group? Over there, I'll come. I'll come over. Okay. Good for you. Do feel free to say your name and uh, and then tell us what what came out.
5: Hi there, I'm Joe. I work with uh, young people at Grenadiers for Christ, and I think the most polarising issue we find is uh, is between sort of an uh, uh, old generation and a younger generation around around issues around sort of sexuality and gender and identity and how a perceived view that's been there for 100 years is now being challenged by a view from 20-year-olds who have been brought up understanding something very different. So um, that's definitely quite polarising. Where the conversations are happening, I mean, within schools, and there's a difference between young people within schools themselves, but I think the intergenerational conversations, I don't really know if they are happening. Mm. Um, And perhaps how do we navigate that or how do we sort of set something up? Maybe there's a challenge within my organisation to sort of try and host or facilitate some sort of wider conversation around that. Brilliant.
0: Thank you. That's that's so helpful. The intergenerational conversation. Yes, over here.
5: Uh, ben from Trent Vineyard in Nottingham, and similar to that, but also kind of looking at the authority structures that we look to. And whereas in past generations, perhaps the, the scriptures were more an obvious and uh, trusted authority that people would look to, even in church. And now there seems to be a, like a decentralisation, a kind of fragmentation of that um, sort of historic trust of the
2: scriptures
0: within churches as well
2: yeah, we're talking about uh relating to islam um, my brother here is a pastor in Leightonstone, in a very strongly muslim area and uh, struggling to communicate effectively with muslims but interesting i've been down why well, i spent 10 years going down to speaker's corner uh, as i think you've in the past done work with jay smith and that and really debating very powerfully with muslims there And it's interesting, but yet at the same time, as I said, the most fruit we've had is actually in a food bank, and Muslims came looking for help and we prayed for them and they became Christians, although there has been some fruit at Speaker's Corner. But it's interesting, actually Muslims like you to talk to them, and and a Muslim will normally allow you to pray for them if you say, can I pray for you? It's interesting.
0: It's interesting, yes. I had a remarkable experience probably 10 years or more ago when I went down and, and sort of did a radio documentary uh, with the the sort of extraordinary debates that happened at least at that time down at Speaker's Corner between Muslims and Christians. Any other thoughts uh, from groups that were shared? Sorry.
3: Hi, my name is Remy. I'm from the Nigeria High Commission. Um, I was just talking to him. He was talking about struggling with the concept of um, suffering in the world, pain and suffering, that if there is a God, why does he allow the suffering? Um, Well, my thought on that is, Um, God is very big on free will, I think. You know, he's never over time forced anybody... There is the way, but he's never forced anybody to take the way. And um, despite how loving he is, he doesn't necessarily save us from the consequences of our actions. And so some of that pain and suffering, I think, would be direct consequences of the choices that we've made as humans. Those are my thoughts on it.
0: And and those are discussions... You know, it's an age-old question, but it's a discussion that's still very live and happening for for many people today. Any any final thoughts as... Well, thank you very much. That that was really helpful, and I hope that that whatever was shared in your small group um, got you thinking on these issues. Um, In many ways, the question is: we're we're all aware, aren't we, of the the polarisation that exists? You know, we've seen the statistics. You know, we're we're aware that we look across the pond at the US, we look at our own political system, and, and we sense that you know, people aren't having good faith conversations anymore. They're, they're using everything to sort of essentially try and bring down the other side. Um, some, some of that sort of communal life, that common life that existed, seems to be being swallowed up by just all-out war in many ways. Um, and and there's, I think there's a number of reasons for, for why we've got here, and I'm not going to try and spell them out in great detail. But the question is, how do we, how do we overcome some of these issues? Um, It's interesting, even in the the Christian and atheist sort of debate world that I've inhabited for some time, the ground has shifted there as well. If you go back 10 or so years, you know, the height of the new atheism and so on, Richard Dawkins' best-selling book, The God Delusion, it was a very militant, aggressive form of dogmatic atheism. But I've seen the conversation shift quite radically in the last few years. One of the reasons, in a a way, is because the new atheism itself sort of self-imploded, because to a large degree, once the leaders of it had agreed that God didn't exist, they then couldn't agree on anything else because uh, they started to split over all kinds of other issues around identity and politics and, you know, are we for this cause or against that cause? No, we're just a free thought organisation. No, we should be championing this. And and actually, the whole thing started to come apart. In fact, one of the most salient sort of examples I've had of this, in my experience, was was... Um, going back several years, um, a, a very sort of strong atheist called um, uh, a, um, Boghossian, um Peter Bogosian, in the USA. He wrote a book, sort of a Richard Dawkins style. Um, it was actually called a manual for creating atheists. It was a sort of resource to people could take, learn how to talk Christians out of their faith. Essentially, was what it was. Uh, and I had him on my show, and we did a debate with a Christian philosopher, and you know went very well, but. You know, he, he literally characterised faith as um, almost a, a disorder, really, a psychiatric disorder. Um, interestingly, fast forward about probably five or six years from when we had that discussion, it was 2018, and I was due to do a, an event, a discussion event in the US in his hometown, Portland, in Oregon. And I reached out to him and said, um, I, I'm looking for a, an atheist to come on and, and have a discussion on stage with a Christian. And he said, he replied to me very, very politely and said, Justin, I'm, I'm gonna say no because at this point, actually, I'm not the same person that you met several years ago. My, he said, I'm still an atheist, but my priorities have changed entirely, he said. In fact, you're, you're, you'll probably find me a lot, a, a lot happier to talk to people of faith than I ever used to be. And it emerged that actually he, he realized that he was closer in many ways to people of faith on a number of issues than he was against them. Because what he had started to see in the academy, he was in a university, was that all kinds of um, issues around truth and objective truth were being questioned all around him by his secular peers. Uh, and, and he said, you'll see why in a few months' time I'm no longer debating Christians. Um, and what emerged was he was actually part of a uh, sort of hoax, uh, organis- a, a group of sort of scholars who published a number of hoax papers in journals uh, in which they, the so-called sort of area of grievance studies was what they were uh, targeting and essentially put out all of these very fanciful ideas which, you know, had really no academic credibility but were accepted by, by these, uh, the, these peer-reviewed papers. And, and his point was that we have a much bigger issue, as it were. I'm, I'm, I, you know, I might disagree with Christians about their beliefs but actually I'm on the same page as a lot of Christians when it comes to is there such a thing as truth? and um and it was really interesting to see the way his priorities changed dramatically over the course of a few years because he saw something much bigger on the horizon and in a way that has been the culture wars it's the culture wars where people simply can't agree on what it is to to live a flourishing life what truth is what and and it it's so interesting when you see that kind of a change in a relatively small time uh, frame from a very, you know, belligerent new atheist to actually someone who sees himself actually as having a lot more in common with many Christians than than he realised. So, in terms of how we actually address these issues of the polarisation in in our culture, I just wanted to offer three thoughts, really, before we maybe turn it over to questions and thoughts from from all of you. Um, Three ways to perhaps we could find the common ground. Um, Getting out of our echo chamber. I think this is so... Important. Um, As I said, we're all aware of the way that Facebook and Twitter and the social media platforms, which drive so much of the conversation in culture at the moment, are essentially profiting from the fact that they can get people into silos, into echo chambers, so that they just basically talk to people who agree with them about the things they agree with. And anyone who they disagree with is essentially presented as this outsider voice that they can gang up on and attack and so on. Um, I think, um, the sad thing is this appeals to a fundamental part of our human nature. I think we like being in the in-group and there being an out-group. And it's actually very difficult and counter-intuitive to actually open ourselves up Genuinely to people who disagree with us. Um, There's an excellent book, actually, that came out last year um, by John Yates. I actually went to university with John. And um, he's written a book called Fractured. And he's worked uh, in the sort of public sector and um, really in the whole area of communal activity. Uh, And his book Fractured, um, which is subtitled Why Our Societies Are Coming Apart and How We Put Them Back Together Again, really says the problem is... Uh, with our culture is that we know we, we only associate these days with people who are like us it's the people like me syndrome is what john identifies here's just one one example that he gives early on in the book he says today about half of brits and americans with degrees have almost no close friends without one fractures between the young and old have become just as pronounced part of the reason older americans find millennials so puzzling is that they don't talk to them Just 6% of Americans older than 60 say that they discuss important matters with anyone under 35 they're not related to. Europe is equally as divided. A study in the Netherlands found that in the average week, roughly 9 out of 10 over 80s had no contact at all with anyone under 60, apart from members of their family. These divisions are a key cause of the loneliness affecting older citizens. If, as you head into later life, your friends are mostly your age they're likely to become less mobile and less able to visit at around the same point that you do. It should therefore horrify but not surprise us when half of Britons over 70 tell us that their closest companion is the television rather than another human being. Millennials are equally cut off. At a point when they need contacts and networks to get ahead, under 35s have roughly just a quarter of the interactions with older generations than would be the case if their friendships mirrored the mix in the local community. As I say, um, John identifies a number of areas where this sort of people like me syndrome happens. Uh, we, we just don't have the mixing. And some people say well, it was ever so, but John disagrees. He thinks that this has become a specific problem in the world we inhabit today. Um, you could take politics. I mean, how many people who voted remain were absolutely flag- flabbergasted when the leave result came in? Because many of them woke up and said, I didn't know a single person who voted leave. I, did, I couldn't imagine that that was going to happen and yet it did happen. It, it was just one more symptom of how divided our culture is because we don't actually mix with people who share different political opinions to us, maybe. Um, and John goes on in the book to say, we should start by recognizing that our problem is not that we are different from each other, people have always lived with difference. There has never been a country on earth where everyone thought the same, believed the same, looked the same and sounded the same. The problem is not that we're different from each other, it's that we are distant from the other. The problem is our lack of interaction with those who are different, that we live in social bubbles filled with people just like me. It is these bubbles that mean you can live in a diverse country and wake up the day after a knife-edge election and find that none of your friends voted the other way. These divisions between us matter. And he goes on to give a number of ways in which those divisions are actually causing the breakdown of our society in all kinds of ways. And the point is, you don't have to agree with other people, but it's important that you meet and dialogue with other people, that you don't live in a bubble. And and sadly, I do see our culture developing this bubble mentality. Um, uh, John has some excellent ways and thinking for mending this divide. Um, But I'm just going to share, as I say, some of mine. Um, and, And one of them is, as I say to get out of the echo chamber. So if you, you use social media, start following some people who you don't agree with. Start engaging with them, hopefully in a in a kind and compassionate way. But the point is that it's only really if we consciously start to look outside of our own circle that we'll end up doing that. Read, read books that you wouldn't necessarily agree with the premise of. Um, uh, open yourself up to a perspective that you don't agree with. Have a conversation with someone you don't agree with. Um, because it was really only in doing that myself through the show and challenging myself that, that I felt I actually grew in terms of what I actually knew. It, it didn't, it, it didn't. Sh- well, yes, actually it actually did shake my faith at some points. There were some preconceptions I had about Christianity that had to be challenged and probably shaped and moulded in the process of having these kinds of conversations. But actually, coming out <coughs> of the other end, I feel my faith is, is stronger, deeper, more mature because of it being challenged by people who did not agree with my perspective. And to that extent, you know, there's that proverb, isn't it, that iron sharpens iron. I think there's something true about the fact that when we come into a sort of relationship and start to engage with people who are different to us, actually, it can strengthen us, ultimately. Um, Second, um, oh, and and one more point. Um, Obviously, Jesus did this all the time. Uh, Jesus was always stepping over the barriers of his day and age, when it came to women, when it came to Samaritans, when it came to all the people that he wasn't supposed to be around, the lepers, the tax collectors and so on, he very, very purposefully showed us the example of what it looks like to get out of your echo chamber, to get out of your silo and start engaging with people that you wouldn't necessarily expect to see yourself engaging with so so that is obviously our our ultimate example of this um, and, and jesus was very good at this next point as well which is making friends with your enemies um, so when i invited richard dawkins on I'd, I'd invited him several times in the past and he'd always <laughs> said no and you know Richard Dawkins has, has given various reasons why he won't debate Christians over the years, and lots of apologists and you know philosophers have tried to get him on a stage to debate the existence of God and so on. And I thought, when I emailed him, this was sort of just after Christmas, um, the end of last year, I thought, oh, I'll try. You never know. Um, I'll try one more time. And I knew that Francis Collins was willing to come on the show and, and talk to someone. So I said so I emailed Richard Dawkins, fully expecting him to say no, um, would would you come on with, with Francis? And he got back to me fairly swiftly and said, Actually, yes, I will, because I, I have a great deal of respect for Francis Collins, he said. And um, and the reason is not because of Francis Collins has great intellectual arguments for Christianity, but because actually they shared a mutual acquaintance um, well, well, it's two reasons, actually. Firstly, Francis Collins is a, is a brilliant geneticist, so Richard Dawkins had a lot of professional respect for him in that respect. But they also had a shared mutual acquaintance in Christopher Hitchens, who was part of the new atheist sort of cadre, and he, a brilliant polemicist, um, died, obviously, of esophageal cancer about ten years ago. And um, and what it emerged was, was that actually... Um, Francis Collins had also been a friend of uh, Christopher Hitchens. In fact, Francis Collins, as a a genomic specialist, had been able to even advise Christopher Hitchens in his final months, been able to do some uh, analysis of of the cancer he had. And and they were able to give him medication that extended his life on the basis of that uh, longer than it would have been otherwise. Uh, Again, apologies if the video doesn't show very well. But um, there was just a lovely moment in their conversation when they talked about that that shared sort of, that shared friendship. Here we go, I'm gonna... F- and bonus content, sign up at show. Here we go. You do have a shared connection with Christopher Hitchens who you mentioned earlier, Richard, um, because it, I was reminded just this past week that you were quite in, 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 in he, um, during his cancer diagnosis, at that because uh, oh dear, well that beautiful tribute you did to him at the his memorial service as well. What what were the circumstances of you coming? To-
1: well, I got to know Hitch before his illness. Um, we were involved as you were, Sides of this question about whether one could be a scientist and a believer in God. And he was a remarkably effective debater, and so anybody who's been on the other side of a conversation with Hitch knows what it's like to have the verbal assault. But was really effective and really funny. And uh, I've always kind of thought this is a good thing: iron sharpens iron. Uh, debating a little bit, mostly privately, uh, was actually helpful to sort of figuring out my own weaknesses in terms of arguments about faith. But we became friends, and I would go and drop by his apartment, and uh, we would drink wine, and uh, he would drink scotch, and we would just uh, discuss to George Orwell, to Thomas Jefferson, to whatever was on his mind, uh, an incredible mind he had. And then he got sick, uh, and he was suddenly diagnosed with already, okay, was glad to try to help uh, to see if the time, and I think we did buy him some time, actually with some genomic analysis of his cancer to figure out what would be the most effective therapy with us for an extra six or nine months. And I was quite close to him during that, unless anyone say otherwise, and, and his atheism. But he was a gracious, uh, we both enjoyed that experience. No, Rather deeply on life's most important question: Is there a God?
0: Any thoughts on that as well from yourself, Richard? I, I knew that, that he, he he really did actually genuinely have friends across the. Despite his you he know strongly held positions himself, he was aware Francis of, the, of, of what you were doing for him and, and um, uh, you know, on, on behalf of people
2: as well on my side, very grateful to you for for what what you were you were doing.
0: Anyway, apologies again for the for the the, the video um, uh, cutting, coming and going. But you got the idea. Um, there was this sort of genuine warmth and affection um, because of the you know the the fact that Collins had been willing to reach out and, and have that kind of an engagement and uh, with 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 you know someone who was in principle you know the enemy on the other side of the aisle. And and I think um, I think this is so important. Um, Making friends with your enemies and listening to them is an absolute key uh, in terms of finding some common ground, in terms of being able to have the conversation (coughs) in the first place. Uh, I wouldn't have been able to bring these two folks together had it not been for that mutual respect that existed there in the first place. Uh, And there's a place for arguments and there's a place for debate. But actually, um, it's really the real stuff happens in the relationship. Um, That's where actually you get... To the core of things you, you get to the real person often behind what are often the, the you know the intellectual facade very often uh, and and we are as we know far more than just walking brains on legs you know um uh, i think it's jonathan height who, who talks uh, about um the psychologist he talks about the elephant and the rider and he says many people assume that we are simply directed by intellectual arguments by our mind by you know evidence and so on but he says actually that's not the relationship psychologically between the sort of the reasoning and the beliefs that we hold he says it's more like an elephant and a rider the rider is on top of the elephant believing that they are in control but actually it's really the elephant underneath them that's in control uh, and they may be able to direct it a little bit but ultimately the elephant is basically steering the course and the elephant in this sort of analogy is in a sense um, our our wider commitments, the sense we have in our gut that often comes from all kinds of different places, our upbringing, our faith, um, you know, our experiences, that is kind of already been decided. And the rider on the top is our rationality, if you like, our mind. And it tends to get more employed in simply making sense of the beliefs that we already hold, that we're already travelling in that direction, and the rationality gets used in the service of that. We're not as rational or guided by reason all the time as we would like to believe is the point. Whether you're coming from a religious or non-religious perspective, we all have our biases. We all have our preferences. We are all, in some sense, a whole mixture of reasons for why we believe what we believe. And, And that's why we have to move beyond just arguments. And that's my third point there. Stop arguing and start persuading. Because we need to have that kind of holistic engagement with people that moves beyond just you know arguing people into your position um and and it does involve listening it involves actually having that genuine openness to people where you're willing to sit down and hear their point of view i don't know about you but i certainly know if i'm basically being given a sales pitch Uh, and i'm sure we've all been in that situation And people, of course, can tell when we are simply giving our sales pitch for our perspective and we're not really there to listen to their point of view. And I think at that point, you've got to ask yourself, why, why am I doing this, you know, ultimately? Uh, because actually we're invited into a genuine conversation. That's, that's where real, real change happens. That's where you actually see, I think, people having that kind of an encounter where their mind could actually change or, in principle, be able to change. Uh, there's, there's a well-known verse, of course... That helps us with this. It's um, sort of the apologists' uh, go-to verse in the Bible, First Peter three fifteen, which says, "Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect." And of course, in my sort of experience, many sort of brilliant evangelists and apologists are great at doing the first part of the verse, not always great at doing the second part—the gentleness and respect. But in my experience, uh, this bit sort of almost has to come first, the gentleness and respect, in order for the answer you give someone to even land, to even have an opportunity to sink in. Because the the way we say things is obviously just as important as the things we say in terms of the way it's received, whether people are going to be open to listening in the first place. And I do believe, you know, that you can't argue anyone into the kingdom of God. certainly arguments can be helpful (coughs) intellectual arguments That's sort of something I've sort of my whole life I've been involved in in hosting shows where we discuss intellectual ideas and debate those issues but they're always only uh, a means to an end ultimately they'll never do the whole job I like the way that Tim Keller has put it before Um, he talks about uh, faith being like walking down a road and that apologetics for instance can remove roadblocks that are in front of someone Um, maybe there's the argument you know from evil and suffering maybe that's a big issue for someone Um, but perhaps we can give some kind of an intellectual argument that helps to remove that roadblock maybe there's another one about can I trust the Bible and we can give some reasons why actually we can trust that scripture is a good record of what happened to Jesus Christ his life death and resurrection maybe we can help to remove another roadblock but ultimately, those arguments won't make the person walk down the road. They, they may remove some of the roadblocks, but there has to be a desire in that person for what's on offer at the other end. You know, you, as, a, as the saying goes, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. And, and part of, I think, the other half of apologetics, apart from giving these sort of reasons and so on, is about making people thirsty for what's on offer. It's, it's that imaginative side. And that really... Is, is where the gentleness and respect comes from, because it's, it's only really through our own example that people will ever want what's, what's there, what's on offer. Uh, I, I've met some brilliant thinkers and apologists who have demolished their opponents in argument, and they've won the argument, but they've lost the person in the process, because all they've really done is won an argument. Um, and for me, it's so important that you play the long game, um, that we, we really engage in building relationships uh, even if we lose some arguments, and that's fine, not everyone who comes to my show who's on the Christian side necessarily kind of wins the argument, but actually I'm more concerned about, ultimately, in the long view, especially for all those atheists and agnostics and non-Christians who listen to the show, what impression are they getting of Christians as they tune in from week to week? Have we actually shown that Christianity is worth living, regardless of whether it's, you know, defensible or true or not, in the end? I believe it's both things, obviously, but... The way we say it matters just as much as what we say. And obviously, all of this applies to all of our relationships, all of the issues where we are debating people. Um, I, I recently came across um, uh, in the States, again, going back to Tim Keller, who's a well-known um, evangelical leader and thinker out there. Uh, there's a, been a movement in the U.S. criticizing him for being too nuanced, too winsome in his approach to trying to, bridge the gap between the, you know, the polarized views there. They say, well, you know, there are people out there saying this is, this is a time for all-out war. We can't, we can't stop and be nice to our opponents. And I don't know what's happened there because someone has not read the Sermon on the Mount at that point. Someone has not simply engaged with what Jesus told us about the way we are to engage people. Yes, even when we're fighting for significant issues, even when there's matters of truth at stake, none of that should stop us being christ-like in the way we actually engage people so so that's a real concern for me and my hope is that as we continue to engage and find these kinds of conversations that we can do that with the spirit of christ uh, and his guidance um but thank you very much for for listening to me go on i can see the time is already approaching uh, 10 past so we've got time for just a few questions and uh, and thoughts uh, and be very happy to hear from everyone and i can come around with my microphone and 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 hear from folk um any any uh, any th- any questions or, or thoughts uh, that, that anyone would like to to share as we start to close up? Yes. I think so. Stories, telling so, stories. Are really let me bring good. this mic just to make sure everyone can hear. Um, I was just going to say, I think telling stories of real life examples of your own faith are most effective. So, speaking to
4: someone outside Campercliff's post office who was had a bit too much to drink the night before and I told him a story that I just
0: read my child the night before um, about a juggler in Italy called Alonzo and it's a true story and people listen to stories more than they do, you know, if you're going
4: to give them a Bible verse because a story is easier to remember than a Bible verse
0: when you're trying to convince people of the gospel. Yeah, and I'm probably not alone in the, the, the bit I'll most remember <clears throat> from what Les Isaac said was the story about the spliff um, this yeah. One. <laughs> yeah I know exactly what you mean
5: my question would be when trying to bring people together or to have conversations around so many things there's often a fear that perhaps we're not an expert or we don't know everything or have all the answers and so we almost disqualify ourselves from sort of having the debate because we wouldn't get anything right or so on so what what's your advice around that? Is something better than nothing or? I, I think definitely
0: something is always better than nothing um, and I think the whole point of a conversation is is that actually people will let their guard down more if they if they don't think you're an expert necessarily in fact it can be more threatening I think to people if you present yourself as I am the expert and therefore if you, you know, if we have a discussion you would better come prepared um, I think we have. We need a bit more humility and, and to admit when we don't know it all. Um, I've gone into situations where I've gone in claiming to know more than I know and it, it never comes off well. Um, and, and the fact is, that's fine because that's the way we are as humans. We learn all the time. I'm, I'm hoping that I will learn when I go into a conversation with someone I potentially disagree with. Um, and I'm willing to say, I don't need the answer to that. But can we continue the conversation? Because I'll go away to see what I can find out. And, and let's... So I think it's just about continuing the conversation a lot of the time. But thank you. Yes.
4: Um, we live in an age, of, I, mean, I love having conversations, but we live in an age of cancel culture. Mm-hmm. And As well as being a church leader, I'm a, a school teacher. And um, I sometimes think if I even just ask the questions that I have about gender and sexuality, <laughs> Who my job could be threatened. So I wonder about how we have conversations in a kind of in that kind of culture.
0: that, that is an incredibly thorny question, and I can't claim to have the answer to that. And, and I think part of the problem is that we have developed into a uh, a culture to some extent where conversation has been cancelled uh, in some in some respects because of the the way in which these issues are held as almost sacrosanct. And there are there are new kinds of. Um, uh, you know, uh, sacred cows that can cannot, if you like, be questioned and so on. Um, for me, I think I think the pendulum is starting to swing back. I think there are good examples in our culture where people are saying, "No, we need to have proper conversations on this." And the problem with, as it, again, social media is it tends to magnify the the loudest voices on, on in this respect. I'm I'm looking over here. and uh, wondering whether p- p- you might you might comment on this because you, you you've obviously been looking at this yourself, the whole, the whole issue of, uh, you
3: know. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, uh, just, sorry, Peter Lyons from Evangelical Alliance, and just now we're just chatting on the way in very briefly, even around the sexuality and transgender conversation, and is that the tip, uh, and beginning to move, and I was just saying, uh, we're doing some work kind on of a being human project, how do you reframe some of these conversations from the very specific issue that I often get asked to comment on, on abortion or same-sex marriage or, or gender, uh, into a wider, what does it mean to be human? Does that go to the core of some of the questions our culture's asking and you apologetic? But I think particularly on the trans one, it was just the example I gave was somebody recently sort of sidled up to made a swim gala. I have two daughters, nine and 12, both swim. And the parents said, look, I don't always agree with what you tweet, open brackets, I think sexuality, close brackets. Um, but I'm really glad you're tweeting about this stuff, pointing down at the pools says I don't think it's fair that our daughters would have to swim against men. I don't think it's fair they could be in the changing room with boys. Um, and so that opens up a conversation, why do you think that, where do we go on that? And so the conversation begins to shift. And I think at the top end there has been a, a fundamental shift in that conversation, it opens up a space. Though as I said to you, I think JK Rowling has done that shift and that's not the framework that I want to have the conversation on either, but I think at least opens the space for it. And it's back to what you're saying, then that creates, takes us out of our echo chambers into a new place to have a different style of conversation because our culture at large is asking more questions. It is chaotic. Peterson's right on that he said here's how you bring order out of chaos I think he gets that partially right but is way short of Jesus and the Holy Spirit and uh, where I want to go beyond where I think he's taking us so I think there's really interesting bits sorry I could be here all day on that but yes I think it's a really interesting moment to be engaging missionally in these conversations and I think you lead us really well in how to do that Justin thank you
0: um, yes one more and then we, we should probably uh, break for the end of the seminar Hi, right,
2: thank you yeah, Hugh Ellis uh, from High Wycombe. Uh, one of my roles is in Christian-Muslim relations and interfaith relations. And over the years, I love the, the term common ground, because basically if God loves everyone and those who seek God find him, you actually do discover if you journey together. And this is uh, people ask, can we go for a walk with you? And we talk and we chat and we listen, we look. We journey together. And God speaks. But I find God speaks in... in through, and I sometimes hear what he's saying, and it enlightens my scripture understanding through what somebody else has said. So we've done scripture reason, scriptural reasoning with Jews and Christians, uh, where the the presenter of the text does not saying anything about it, but others are asked to listen to what God is saying, and of course God speaks when you listen, yeah, and. Um, Somebody said just, uh, at, I'm retiring shortly, and at, the, at a farewell, a civic farewell, to a Muslim friend with, with whom we work at um, Refugees, welcoming uh, Wickham Refugee Partnership. Uh, she introduced me as, this is somebody that I think is more Muslim than we are, <laughs> course, which is quite an interesting statement, but it was nothing to do with my theology, it was to do with the concept of submitting to God. And I thought, yeah, that's extraordinary. Ultimately, it's the integrity of Christ in us that makes the difference, and God speaks.
0: I think that's a brilliant way to end it, because it's about not being afraid, I think, of having those conversations and and allowing ourselves to be challenged, but to be absolutely confident in our convictions at the same time, but trusting that we don't have to be afraid. I think the one lesson I've learned over the years is that confidence (laughs) is not about shouting louder than the other person. It's about actually being able to hear what they're saying and simply to absorb it, and not necessarily to have to shout them down or, or disprove them, because actually we do believe, actually, that we have a trust that goes beyond simply good arguments or intellectual arguments. Uh, we have something much, much deeper than that. But um, thank you so much for all coming out for this seminar, and I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you.